Hey everybody, Jason Perro with Perro Real Estate, Brick and Mortar Properties, and Petro Capital. If you want to learn about real estate investing, listen to my friend Sam Newell's podcast, Recession Proof Real Estate Investing. Welcome to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Sam Newell, your host, and it is my goal to educate you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. I interview the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they have learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become my goal to help others invest for double-digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession-proof. How are things going? Things are good. Things are good. First of the month, so it's busy. Rent's due, right? Rent is due. That's <laughs> best day of the month, right? Very, yeah. Unless or the worst. I mean, if you have right? a bunch of people move out, then it's a bad day, but no, it's, a, it's usually a good day. Remind me how many doors you have right now. 900. Jeez. Yeah. So what, uh, what software do you use to track all that? Propertyware. Propertyware. I haven't heard of that one yet. It's very similar to Appfolio. What I like about it is it, it co- kind of communicates with QuickBooks a little bit easier. Oh. And so you don't have to duplicate your efforts. So we can export everything to QuickBooks and, and our banking and everything. And so it's a little bit more user-friendly in that regard. It's pretty good. I mean, we use it. It has a like a, they have a call center. So our tenants will call the call center. Things get like recorded into their account. You know, it's just, it's, it's a pretty easy streamlined way to, to, you know, uh, to handle stuff. And how's Nadia doing? Good, good, good. She's, you know, trucking along. They got a flip house they're trying to sell right now. So she's been busy with that and And remind me about your kids ages. What are they doing? My son is 14. He's going to high school in a month. And okay. my daughter's 11 going into sixth grade. So they, they, they mow the lawn for me. That, that's what, like they're learning how to do some small tasks. But, you know, other than that, they play Fortnite. That's about like every, every <laughs> like, you know. There you go. Even, even your daughter, she plays as well? Yeah. Well, she's more in the, I'm trying to think, it's called Roblox. I don't know. That, that's a. Okay. Other games that, that kids are into that I just don't understand the the draw for it, but kids. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah, I, I don't know. They, I was never really allowed to play a lot of video games. I think I was allowed like one video game a day for like, like yeah. one game, you know? So if it lasted 10 minutes or 20 minutes, that was a different, different world. Well, it is. So you've got a 14 year old and 11 year old, you said. Yeah. And so tell me, remind me a little bit about your background. You and your wife both did medical sales, right? Yeah. So she was a pharmaceutical rep. I worked in medical device sales. Well, I did pharmaceutical sales for a few years and did me- medical device. Uh-huh. Um, started, we built our portfolio the old fashioned way. I mean, we saved up down payment, you know, so 2001, it was, you know, bought a duplex. The next year it was a duplex and a quad and just did it really slow and steady like that early on. Left my day job in 2012. And we were about 290 units at that point in time, which I thought was great. I mean, you know, we just, we had no partners. It was just us and that's That's uh, what we did. And so out of our unit count now, about 600 doors are just us, no partners, and then 300 are syndicated. So it's it's having a nice mix, you know, being able to do like a little bit of, a little bit of everything. So that's awesome. And tell our listeners where you are. You're in Erie, Pennsylvania, right? EPA, man. Yep. Tell us about that demographic, that, you know, MSA area. Yep. So Erie PA is the city itself is, is about a hundred thousand people. 
It's a shrinking city, but that's a little misleading. Like any other Midwest city, they say they're shrinking, but it's just going out to the greater MSA, which is Erie County. So Mm -hmm. things have spread out from the city to the suburbs. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a nice mix of, of demographics. So you have, you know, we've got universities, five universities locally. We have the, the nation's largest medical school with LECOM. So it's, it's a DO school that also has a dental school and a pharmacy school. So that's been a huge influx of medical students, dental students, pharmacy students that all need places to live as well as employers or employees and people that work, you know, work for LECOM and, you know, people that work for the hospital that, that, that school is affiliated with. Erie Insurance is a big, big employer. They're probably the fastest growing employer in our area. So Yeah, you know, that's a lot of tech and, and, you know, like white collar jobs, but like anything in the Midwest, there still was a big manufacturing base here. So GE Transportation was one of the largest employers. Uh, they're still, I think the largest with several thousand employees, but, you know, 50 years ago, they employed 50,000 people. Now, you know, they employ you know, 3,500 or 4,000 people. So it's much less, but, but again, that's, you know, that such is the life of, of you know, a, manu- a company that manufactures things. So yeah, into tech and everything else. But, you know, we're the nice thing with our market, like a lot of tertiary markets is that it's, you know, we're really not tied into, you know, you know, when the market corrects, there's not been a big run up, you know, we're not Nashville, Tennessee or Denver that had this like million person population boom over right. a 10 year period. I mean, with that, you know, obviously comes jobs and all these other great things, but, you know, we just sort of hold steady. So I think the allure, the sexiness of our market might is really the cash flow and, and modest appreciation. So something that's really predictable. And so I think that, you know, once you, you know, in terms of underwriting deals, you know, once you look at a deal, you know, you're not going to budget for 5% rent growth or 4% rent growth. You're just going to budget one or 2% a year. And, and that's okay. study. same thing with the property appreciation. I mean, if you do a value add and things like that, the property price will improve, but you're not, you know, you're not just going to have this scenario where, you know, you buy a property for a million bucks and a year later you sell for 2 million. It's just, right. So I don't want to say that's the downside. That's probably the safe side. You know that you're not investing for those wild swings. You're more or less, you know, investing for cash flow and, and, you know, right. modest, modest appreciation. Well, you know, I really like the saying, get rich slow, you know, yeah. and I have all these investors, they, they're so frustrated with me right now. And I have this guy with a 1031 exchange he's he's saying you know that's not good enough you know i need i need an eight cap and i need something that's going to be worth double in the next five to ten years because i need yeah. to make it big and i'm like good luck you know keep yeah, looking i'm not your guy yeah i can't double your value i mean yeah one or the other right yeah so it's it, it's interesting and and you know this is that's what this podcast is about and i really want to touch on that with you you've been in business a long time, you know, since 2002, you saw the huge up uptick in the market. You saw the crash, probably saw a lot of other people make mistakes. You know, greed does not usually work well for people. And especially in real estate, if you're getting greedy and if you're really trying to just swing for the fences, I feel like that's where people get caught. But take me back to 2002. Well, you know, take me back to Jason Perrow in high school. Yeah. You want to A, be in medical device sales and B, end up being a real estate investor. So, yeah. So in high school, I mean, I grew up in a small town on a grape farm. I graduated with like 133 kids, something like that. You know, I had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. You know, I went to a small liberal arts college about an hour and a half from my house. I didn't want to move too far. I had this like high school girlfriend. I thought, you know, we're going to get married and get serious. 
I broke up like a month into college, but <laughs> I, I had no clue what I wanted to do. I mean, I was really shy, you know, and I, I ended up kind of coming out of my shell more like a lot of people do in college and mm-hmm. ended up getting a degree in public relations with a minor in business. You know, I had some internships in college that started teaching me about money and, and I didn't know, I mean, I knew about money in terms of getting a job, I mean, and things like that, but I didn't know how money worked. I didn't know how investing worked and had an internship with, with a financial planning firm. And I, I tell the story a lot because it really hit home for me when I, I was scheduling appointments with these, with the planner's clients and, and I would go through the, their, the client's files. Just, I was really curious. I, I was, I'd see it like a dual income, you know, physician and attorney, you know, white collar positions, you know, making six, 700,000 a year uh-huh. in a net worth of like $50,000. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, you know, it didn't, wasn't, didn't seem terrible, as terrible to me as it sounds now. But then I see a, like clients that were like two school teachers you know, making a combined income of 80, 80 or 90,000 a year that had a net worth of like $4 million. I'm like scratching my head. I'm like, how does that work? And the brokers yeah. were like, well, you know, they, they bought rental properties and they use the cash flow to invest in other things. And, and I'm like, how does that work? And I started re- learning about investing and learning about compound interest. And at the same time, you know, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and, you know, the millionaire, ne- millionaire next door and, and a lot of like money management mindset types of books. And I realized that, you know, yeah, this path of becoming a financial planner probably wasn't for me because I didn't want to put 20 or 30 years into a career to finally start making real money and then be tied to that same career. I, I had this taste of what building wealth like would look like and I wanted to, mm-hmm. to do that. So got into sales. I, I had my eye on pharmaceutical and medical device sales because at the time I thought it would be, you know, a, it seemed like a really good career to make a decent amount of money, but I thought, Hey, there's an ability to, to maybe make an impact. You know, you're selling something that, you know, in pharmaceuticals, whether it was the, the medication or in medical device sales, the, the implant or the thing that the surgeon was utilizing to, to make a patient's life better, there was some sort of satisfaction out of that. Right. But learned a ton in the corporate world and, and was able to take those skills now, you know, apply a lot of that to, to my business. But yeah, we actually closed our first property a week before 9-11 in 2001. Oh, I remember you saying that. Yeah. And you know, it was like a $32,000 duplex. And I mean, prices were really low in Erie at the time. I mean, there wasn't much to speak of. I mean, we've, we, I still own the property. We've done a ton of work over the years. We've put new roof and siding and windows and furnaces and, you know, just have made it a lot nicer than it was. Yeah. Um, but the rents were like three seventy-five a month. And at the time I bumped up bucks to like four seventy-five a month. I think now we're at like 600 a month per, per unit, but but at the time, you know, I saved up $3,000. I, I, so I put 10% down on this property, got like some sort of first time home buyers loan. Mm-hmm. And, and, but it was a 15 year amortization, nothing crazy, but I cash flowed enough, a few hundred bucks to like pay one of my student loans. That's awesome. Really great. Like I, I can pay my student loans off with this duplex. And yep. I started thinking about it that way. And so my wife, who wasn't my wife at the time we were dating, you know, she's, I got her on board with the, with the prod, with the plan. And so when she graduated college and got her first job, so why don't we save all of our money and just start buying real estate? And, you know, we were doing a lot of heavy lifting. It was you know, right. living with one person's salary, even though we made good money to having that ability to sacrifice and not buy a fancy car and not buy, you know, like the big house and all those things early on. And we just saved our money to buy duplexes and quads and all these things. And, and, you know, and as we made more money and, and got better jobs, 
you know, like the financial goals kind of laddered up and said, well, I have to make more and I have to do this until I, until I leave my day job. But I have, I have zero regrets about how long I stayed in the day job. I think that, you know, it just, that taught me a lot. It took me a while to build my confidence and just, you know, probably could have left way before having 290 units, but you know, when they have you by the golden, you know, the golden handcuffs, it's really hard to, to leave. And, and when you're younger, you know, and maybe when you get a little older and, you know, if I was, you know, I'm 42 now. And if I was this age, you know, then I probably would have, I probably would have grown sick of things a little quicker. So it's, you know, it's been seven years since I left that job, but you know, you, sometimes when you're in twenties and thirties, you don't, not everybody has that, that, that the confidence to go out and do it on their own. I, at least I didn't. And, and right. I would, I would feel a little, little bit differently about it if I was in the same position right now. And I probably would have left a lot sooner. Well, so you left at age 35. That's still, that's yeah. pretty dang good, man. That's, yeah, that's awesome. So I liked a couple things you said. First of all, how much did you buy that duplex for? 38,000, you said? 32 grand. 32. I'm just running yeah. a cap rate on my calculator. That was crazy. <laughs> you bought <laughs> You bought at an 18 cap rate based on 35% expenses. Yep. That's ridiculous. Good for you. That's fun. So, and I, and I love that you said you were paying your student student loan with it and you were disciplined and you put maybe delayed some gratification, even though you were making good money, you made sacrifices. And what's funny is, you know, I've been making pretty decent money selling a lot of homes for years and selling investment properties. My wife and I bought our first new piece of furniture last year, we bought a bed and we bought a couch and I love it. 10 years. I'm 34. Now we've always had hand-me-downs or stuff from Goodwill. And so, so a lot of people didn't think I was that successful. You know, I, I didn't buy a new car. I always had used cars and we were throwing all of our money into these townhomes, these duplexes, these triplexes, fourplexes. And, and um, I, I love that you said that because I don't think most people are capable of even considering that I try so hard <laughs> to convince my clients to not buy these crazy expensive houses that they have in my opinion no business buying you know right. and I, I look at their income with them and or I talk to their lender they're making 60 70 thousand a year and and spending three four five six hundred thousand on a home right. that they can literally all of their money is going towards all they can do is is pay for that house and pay for their little Acura or BMW payment. And, and that's all of their money. So I love that you said that you guys made some sacrifices. Yeah. How long did you live frugally like that? I'm curious. What was, what was your road on the frugalities? Well, yeah, I mean, it was, we definitely lived way below our means, you know, definitely for the first probably eight to 10 years of, of, you know, of that journey. I mean, we did, you know, kind of jump to a bigger house, you know, at the very beginning of 2008, but it wasn't crazy, you know, considering what we were making at the time. I mean, I think we were making really great money. So, you know, at the time, I think maybe our income joint income was like, say, close to $300,000. And yeah. we bought a $300,000 house. Oh, what, so, do, what do you get in Erie, Pennsylvania for a $300,000 house? Uh, you, 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 well, at the time, you could get a really nice house. And we ended up putting, over the years, we put a lot of money and additions into the house. But, you know, for reference for some of your listeners, I mean, even today, say a $300,000 house would be like triple to quadruple that in say a Denver or yeah. if you're looking yeah. at San Diego, the same house would be $2 million or something right. crazy. I mean, the, the difference is like, and that, that's the beauty of a tertiary market. So the other thing, so my wife, Nadia was looking at, 
you know, moving to Boston or, or another big market out of college. She had all these job offers and, you know, like I, I joke around and say the love one, but you know, our, my game plan was that we said, look, we can live like Kings in your EPA. We, we're not going to make any more money living in California or Boston. Right. So we can make the same amount of money, live like Kings here, travel the world and do all these, you know, do all these great things. And fortunately that worked out. So while we sacrificed, she kind of gentle, gently reminded me, over the years, like, Hey, we're doing all this saving, we're doing all this investing, but what do we have to show for it? And, you know, we should at least start enjoying life a little bit. So, you know, we bought the house and we started doing some more traveling. I mean, I think still lived within our budget and lived within our means. And the problem was, you know, we were working so much and and sacrificing so much that it, it was a long time before we took a proper vacation. So I think it was maybe 2010 or 11 when I guess maybe early 2011, like we took the first, like, you know, week and a half long vacation, like where we were gone, like say a Friday through the following, you know, Monday, oh, as wow. opposed to just taking like a, a Wednesday through a Sunday or, you know, like a shorter yeah. type of trip. We just, we had just sacrificed so much. So, you know, it, it took a while and, you know, but now, you know, there's this really good balance. You, you know, you want to save and invest to do the things you want to do in life and you want to do it before you're too old, you know, while you're still right. and healthy and, and create memories for you and your family. So, so there's some sacrifice involved, but yet it takes a little bit of the other side of the discipline to know that, hey, I'm going to buy investments that will pay for the things I want to do in life, be it travel, or giving back or whatever it is. But, you know, so it, it was it was a little bit of a pendulum shift for us. You know, we're saving everything we could, you know, living so cheaply. And then, you know, got to a point where, you know, like now now we're enjoying it. But I think, you know, it's having that balance of both where you're making responsible choices for your future. But yeah you know, but also being able to enjoy, enjoy the life you want. Now that's huge. And, and I think people want to, you know, they, they can't put off the life they want for 10 years. That just, you know, I, I have friends, they're going on a vacation once a month, they're gone a week or four or five days. And, and I'm getting invitations to go fishing or, or do different things. And I just don't understand how they're gone all the time. But then you realize they don't have any investment properties. Yeah. They don't have any savings. They don't make amazing money, but they get to play a lot. So it's a huge sacrifice. Geez, you said something else that I really liked. I thought it was funny what you're mentioning about San Diego or those other markets. You know, in Utah right now, for 300000 you can get a townhome. <laughs> or you can get an older older house. So we're, yeah. we're getting out of the affordability range. But what I think is important, that's why we're buying apartments. Mm-hmm. You know, because in Erie, Pennsylvania, you know, it's, it's, it's not by any means a bad market or, or a place that I wouldn't own stuff in, but it is less expensive. But I feel like most areas, and, and tell me about Erie, are you guys starting to see an affordability issue as well? Not really. I mean, the prices have crept up a little bit on the residential side, but, but I got to tell you, there's, there's still like, in, like these new neighborhoods that are be, being developed. I mean, there's a lot of houses in that three to $500,000 range. And, and for a dual, dual income family, I mean, that, that can be really affordable. And there's a lot of homes that are, and you can still get a really decent home in a decent school district for $150,000, which sounds crazy to a lot of people, but you can get a <laughs> 2000 square foot home and maybe it's a little older, but yeah. you know, if you go in and paint and put some new carpet, you know, yeah. it's not, in, it's not in a bad area, you know? And, and I mean, that's, that sounds crazy to people, you know, that, but that it is affordable and that that's the beauty of it. I mean, yeah, it's Erie PA. I mean, it's not, it's not a Nashville, Tennessee, but you know, we're an hour and 20 minutes to Cleveland, 
downtown Cleveland, an hour and a half to downtown Buffalo, an hour and 40 minutes to downtown Pittsburgh. And those, so if you really crave that big city life, I mean, look, if you live in New York city, it's going to take you, you know, it's going to take you two hours to get from Connecticut to Manhattan anyhow. So you just have to, you know, think about it in those, you know, kind of in those terms, but you're still very affordable. and, And that, that's part of what makes it a great place to live is that you don't just have to work to live. You can work and then go and have a really great life and enjoy, you know, great, great weather for at least eight months out of the year and, <laughs> and like, and have, you know, have a life that, you know, you, then you can afford to maybe leave town when the snow starts flying and, you know, there you go. don't love the cold. And down to Florida or something. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I, I love that. And, you know, we're probably going to get out of Utah in the next few years, not out of Utah, but out of the Salt Lake Valley area get up to somewhere that's a little bit more affordable, but away from people and kind of similar to you enjoy the sacrifice we've made. We actually, and I'll get off this topic um, after this, but we just bought our first house that's actually for us. So for 10 years, we've been flipping homes, house hacking, moving in and, and rehabbing homes. And, and this last house we bought from a couple that was getting divorced, they had trashed it, it had an amazing view. So it was the last one I could convince my wife to actually move into. Nice. <laughs> so we're building a house and, and, and it's fun, but you know, I, I think that's huge. And, and I think when people get intimidated about getting into real estate investing, it's because they, they don't know how to, they're going to pay for it. Well, if you're buying all the nice cars and the nice homes, you're probably not going to be able to pay for it on a regular salary. Right. That's the point I want people to take away is you and Nadia, lived on one salary, saved a lot of your money. And you, you know, kids, when they're, when they're babies, they don't need to go on the amazing vacations. I I keep telling my buddies, you know, I I take our kids on these fun vacations and realize their favorite part was the pool. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I like that you guys did that, but so you guys were in full investment mode up until the, the crash. Tell me what you did in the crash what you saw, maybe some mistakes you saw people make. Tell me where you guys were at with your investment vehicle. Sure. You know, so we went from, you know, two units in 2001 and 2005, we we had 23 units and bought a 56 unit deal. So we're up to 79 units. I'd say, I think in 08, we were in the hundred and probably, probably in the 150 or 170 unit range. And, you know, so we had everything from, you know, the smaller properties to a few, you know, a 20 unit here, a 15 unit there type of thing. And, you know, during the during the crash, I mean, because we both had income, we were safe in that in that sense. You know, saw a lot of opportunity. I mean, at the time we were buying singles, doubles, triples, that type of thing, but a lot of foreclosures. So, be able to come in and pay cash for something, something small that was distressed, put money into it, refinance it, at a really low loan to value because the banks are still lending money, but they were lending at like sixty percent LTV, sixty five percent LTV. So. You know, in so, some cases, I still had some of my own money into the into the deal, but not not you know not twenty or thirty percent. So I still was building equity. Had it you know had a chance to to get into a lot of you know a lot of property that was distressed and needed some TLC. You know, a lot of that was like C and D, which I'm not a fan of anymore. But it was a great way to you know it was a great way in our trajectory to have have a means to an end. And I've had my fair share of C and D flips. Yeah. I'm and, really and, um, jealous of you right now as you're explaining what you did during the crash. I was at in school doing summer sales in Philadelphia, in Minneapolis, and New Jersey, sure. selling alarm systems. And I had no idea I was going to be in the real I knew I wanted to flip someday, but sure. um, didn't buy my first flip t- t- till 2010, which I got a good deal, but 
I'm so yeah. jealous of people like you that were prepared, ready, yeah. had been disciplined with their money yeah. and were able to take advantage of those huge discounts. I mean, what would you say your average discount was? Do you have an idea? Gosh, I mean, it was, I mean, sometimes we're getting things for like 30 cents on the dollar. I mean, oh my God. <laughs> I bought a property for a thousand bucks. Once and it was, I what? Mean, it was, so this, it was a four unit and it was. Wait, you it, bought a fourplex for a thousand bucks? But I mean, it was probably worth negative 50,000. I mean, it was terrible. It had like, okay. there was a dead rat, probably the size of like an opossum stuck <laughs> in the wall. It was like, it was crazy oh. bad. Like, uh, and, it, and it was in a probably a rough area of town, but I went in and we put about 70, $60,000 into the property. So we did a roof and windows and electric system, HVAC, like everything that you could think of. So we converted three of the units to apartments and we did one of the units became like a, like a storage area for our maintenance team. So I was getting big enough at the time that I started having the maintenance guys and we needed a place to store all the construction material and things like that. But so I bought it for a thousand say 65,000 into it and each apartment rented out for $550 a month. So, yeah. you, you know, not a ton of expenses because again, that's almost like a new build when you've rehabbed everything. So it was just a great, you know, we could put it into a 15 year loan and, and you know, the things, you know, they're just a few years away from being paid off at this point. Hold so, on. You bought that at a 30 cap. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but again, you know, that's, that's with the, all money in. So all the brain damage though, so the, the flip side though, you know, when you deal with that type of property yeah. is the brain damage that you, from, you know, you've done all this work, put your blood, sweat and tears into, into the property. And, you know, 10 years later, you know, evictions and tenants tearing up the property and you just yeah. want to cry because you're like, why, why am I doing this? You know, the, it, 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 it's enough to drive you mad. I've actually, I sold that property to one of my old property managers who I've helped kind of you know, he's bought some property and he's trying to build his, you know, build his way and build his wealth. And so I, I probably make less money on paper, but I've been able to help my, you know, this kid who's really trying to build up his, you know, you know, his net worth and build up his, you know, his experience. And so he's very happy and, you know, he has this, you know, he's making cash flow. but I mean, if something, if, if, you know, the, if, if uh, something goes haywire, well, the deeds in my name and I would have to take it back over. But the flip side is, you know, I, I vetted him very thoroughly. He worked for me for three years. I know how he operates properties because he worked for me. Mm -hmm. So I was able to still kind of flip that and still make $100 per door per month without having to wow. think about anything other than making sure that he's going to pay me every month, which, you know, which he's been doing a fantastic job with. So, so there is an exit plan out of that type of property. Smart. So you still financed it to him and he's managing it. He's got the brain yeah. damage now. You're still yeah. cash flowing a little bit, but without doing anything than collecting your basically the mortgage payment from him. Correct. So you, you were buying properties at 30 caps, which blows my mind. I've been telling my wife for 10 years, we got to be ready. We got to be ready. Yeah. We're going to buy deals 20, 30 cents on the dollar. And I don't think it's, I was hopeful it was going to fall again. I mean, as bad as that sounds, I was crossing my fingers. That would be my big break. I don't think it's going to, but you know, it's interesting. Uh, yeah. A lot of guys that you see a lot of people posting up deals on Facebook and the people are buying stuff at ridiculous, you know, four cap, five cap, yep. one yep. cap, whatever it is. And banks, you know, they're still lending money. But what happens when their value add plan doesn't come through because it's been value added 10 times over the last yeah. five years. At some point, the party stops for some of the, for some of these guys. And I All think right. that whether the whole market 
the whole economy turns or just maybe there's some inflated, you know, people that bought multifamily at an inflated price. I think there will be some, some properties that you're, you're able to get it, you know, maybe at a, maybe at that big discount from what it most recently sold for, right. You might be able to buy it for what it's really worth. And so I think you'll, you will have that opportunity regardless of what happens with the international economy. I think just, just stay tuned for some of that stuff in the primary market. So one of the, our fellow mastermind attendees last week, and he and I were talking about, you know, the reasons why we invest in tertiary and secondary markets is the, you know, is because we're buying for cash flow uh-huh. and that we will jump into that primary market when, when those opportunities come up. So I think that, you know, you're not, you're not wrong in thinking you'll be able to get those types of discounts. It's just a matter of when and, and where right. I think, I think that day is coming soon, sooner than later, nobody can time it, but it'll happen. I, I really like what you just said, you know, buy, buy for cash flow now, bank your cash, save your money and buy in the, you know, those primary markets when these people that are buying these outrageous deals, outrageously priced deals can't perform. And, yeah. you know, as a realtor, as a broker, I watch my listings sell and my, my investors make money and I'm excited for them. And then I'm like, who bought this? Like, yeah. Who just paid this price? I just sold a duplex in Provo, Utah. Great market, primary market, huge growth. Uh, 15 offers. The best offer we got had no appraisal contingency, no due diligence contingency, no, no contingencies at all, which I negotiated out of the contract for them because I knew it wouldn't appraise. And it sold for like 30000 above what I thought was a decent deal at like a five cap. And... <laughs> Crazy. If they got traditional financing, they'd be negative two to three hundred dollars a month on cash flow. Um, <laughs> and then I just sold one next to the University of Utah at a four point seven cap. Wow. So it's 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 interesting. And there's no value at it. I mean, rents were rents were where they need to be. So right. it, it's interesting. But I think you're right. I, I think that's the play is being able to take advantage, have your cash ready. And, and yeah. that's been my entire goal for the last four or five years is realizing, okay, maybe I won't get deals for 30 cents on the dollar, but I don't need to, I can do really well. Right. Buying just like you said, properties for what they're really worth at a five, five point nine, six, six point five cap in a good market where there is going to be rent growth. And yeah, I, I think that's a good point. So, so tell me, so it sounds like your plan is to have cash ready for the next opportunity. What big mistake would you say a new people or people getting into real estate are making right now? You know, the, the name of the podcast is recession proof real estate investing. <laughs> yeah. What are they doing to not be recession proof? Yeah. So I, I think I've had this conversation with a couple investors over the last year. And I think that there's two things that I think about, you know, in, in terms of preparing for an economic downturn. Number one is not having long-term financing in place with some sort of ability to not be boxed into a corner. And so what I mean by that, I mean, I, you know, when you're, if you're in a big multifamily deal, try to go for a 12 or 15 year fixed rate option, or even if it's a 10 year fixed, make sure your term is a 20 year term. Because, you know, if you can stress test a deal and say, well, gosh, if my rate goes up five points, maybe your investors aren't getting their money back, but your lender's not going to call the, the stinking loan. I mean, right. that, that's, that's the biggest thing. And, and, you know, and even on smaller deals, you know, a lot of times the local banks and regional banks will make you do, you know, reset the rate every 
five years, which isn't the worst thing in the world because if the economy turns negative, you're going to get the benefit of those rate resets. But, mm-hmm. but I think you, know, you don't want to be in a situation where the bank can call your loan. If there's a balloon yep. payment, anytime you have a balloon payment, make sure that you have some sort of escalator clause in the deal. And I, and look, I've, I've done that with stuff that I've purchased over the last several years, but also things that I've sold and owner financed because I don't want to get anybody stuck into a corner that they can't right. get out of. I, right. I was there with a private seller once and it was a long story and I'll boil it down to like one thing was that, you know, he decided he went back on his word and wanted, he originally said he was going to extend the loan. And then about a month before the, the loan was due, he, he said, Hey, I want my money back. And, oh, and I had to go out and it wasn't, it, you know, unfortunately like we were able to work through it, but he was being very unreasonable at the time about, you know, that if it was a day late, then not, you know, all these bad things are going to happen. And I'm like, but you were telling me for 10 years that you're going to extend the loan. Right. And so ever since that point, I said, I'd never want to be backed into a corner mm-hmm. regardless of how much trust and how much, you know, I, I believe that the loan's going to go well. I just look, if you have a balloon payment, then there should just be an escalator clause like, okay, the loan's due today and you don't have a million dollars to pay it back. Well, then the rate goes up a point per year until you, until you refinance it. That's you can a really live good point. The consequences there a heck of a lot easier than you can if, if all of a sudden they're like, well, pay us a million dollars back. The loan's due or we're going to take your property. That's not, that's not a position that anybody wants to be in. So I think that's like number one is just as you negotiate deals, again, whether it's agency debt or whether it's, you know, a local bank or even a private seller, just make sure you have a little bit longer time baked into the deal than you plan on holding it. And if it is a long-term hold, then just make sure you have something, you know, built into that. You don't, you know, you can't increase, the rate can't increase above a certain percentage. And so maybe it's five points, maybe it's three points, but maybe pay a little bit more upfront for that peace of mind later on. So that's like probably one of the biggest mistakes is like getting into loans with no real exit strategy and and then just praying for the best. I mean, you really have to have something actionable because especially with private financing and, bank and local bank financing is their appetites change. You know, I might say today, hey, I, yeah, I want payments. I'll, I'll extend your loan for another 10 years. But who knows in 10 years, I may say, no, no, I need the money for something else, you know, and, and that's the, and that's the thing. People's desires and wants change. So make sure you bake that into your deal to have that soft landing. And, and I think the other thing, you know, a lot of people are, again, they're looking at those four and 5% cap rates and just, you know, thinking that they can do a value add where the value adding may, may be done. And so if yeah. you might be able to keep raising that rent, but that's really what, when the recession comes, you know, the tip of the spear, so to speak, is that a class property that you've raised the rents to like the top of the market. Yep. That's what really gets affected is the very top of the market, the very bottom of the market. So, you know, can you, be in something that's safe that like, you know, if somebody loses their job because unemployment all of a sudden spikes up to eight or 9%, 10% and, and then rent renters, you know, are probably going to be the ones first affected. Right. And so, you know, are, are they going to be able to afford the rent on unemployment? You know, okay. if you're at seven, $800 a month rent or even a thousand dollar a month rent, they might be able to make, make ends meet. But if their rent's $4,000 a month, they're screwed, man. That's a tough, yeah. that's a tough call if they lose their job. So I think, you know, um, not saying to stay away from A class property, but um, I I was like just <laughs> caution yourself from like, yeah. can I, you know, can I really add this all this extra value here, or am I just being overly optimistic? Because so many people just want to do a deal to say they've done a deal, yeah. you know, and I get that. I mean, I I, I feel like that all the time. I, you know, you want to do deals, but 
you know, you don't want to do anything that's going to like, you know, put in jeopardy everything you've worked hard to do. Uh, you, you had some really good points there. The, the one I want to go back to is that that clause where, okay, if I have a balloon payment, and for the listeners that don't maybe understand a balloon payment, your the loan ends maybe at year ten, and all of a sudden you have to pay the balance of the loan, and sometimes you don't have a million bucks on hand. You know, most of the time, or or if you're banking on refinancing and rates have gone up by a huge amount that can be really tough to do. Yep. And I actually know a couple operators, they're doing three and five year loans and, mm-hmm. and they're not worried about it because they just think these low rates are going to stay low forever. But what <laughs> if rates go up and values don't go up as much as you think you're not going to necessarily going to be able to refi or sell at, at the time. So you have to plan for the worst there. One of my lenders said to me yesterday, he said, everything's great until a plane flies into a building. You know? And <laughs> yep. that's, you just, you never know yep. what type of international disasters and crises like yeah. hit and things yep. that are totally out of your control. I mean, you know, I mean, we're in a great economy right now. I mean, unemployment's low, interest rates are low. So there's a lot of consumer confidence, but just one weird thing that like, and that happens that could, you know, um, change everything. I mean, yeah. politics change. I mean, all sorts of stuff that, yeah. you know, just a new president could change everything, you know, just a little bit of policy change, you know, a new president in a different country. I mean, things can be affected. And so uh, interesting story about balloon payments or, uh, you know, a bank calling a note due my, the broker owner of my company, he's the most successful now a century 21 broker for residential in the world. Um, George Morris, great guy. I'm, I'm starting his, his commercial division. He's been all residential until now. just hugely successful, but there was a time in the downturn where he was struggling. He was in real estate and, and all of a sudden he owed $30,000 on a house and he almost lost his personal residence. And he told that story yesterday. And, and I think people need to hear those stories. They need to hear your advice because people my age that were in college in 2007, eight, didn't, we didn't know what was going on. We're just like watching YouTube and like, (laughs) <laughs> we're going to this class. Yeah. I mean, we, we didn't know what the heck yeah. was going on. So that, that's why I asked you that. And, and, and that's huge. One, one, I guess, piece of advice or personal philosophy about it though, is like, we all have our political views and whatever. And, and that's, but what I, somebody told me early, early on, and it always stuck with me. It was like, don't ever blame or give credit to politics and the economy for your success or failure. If you want to be wealthy, the, the most successful, most wealthiest people figure out how to adapt to the economy and create a strategy that, Hey, if interest rates go up, here's, here's how I'm going to do a deal. Or, Hey, if you know, this tax gets implemented or this type of thing happens, you you just have to plan differently and plan better. And I think that, you know, I, I I will never, I'll never blame a politician for my success or fail, you know, blame a politician for a failure in a deal or real estate. And I'll never give them credit for it either. I think that, you know, you just have to adapt your strategy to what's going on in the economy and if you do that, then, you know, you're not going to lose sleep over, you know, who's doing what in office and whatever, just it, it, that can be exhausting and, and, and take your eye off the ball, which I mean, the biggest fortunes have been made, no matter what's happening politically or economically, people can, yep. you can take advantage and create a strategy that, that adapts to any, any economic condition. It's true. I got that same advice early on and I was all mad about a certain president <laughs> years ago that got elected and, 
and people get so caught up in, oh, my life's going to be ruined because mm -hmm. Trump's doing this, or my life's going to be ruined because Obama did this. And yeah, I honestly don't pay attention to that. I vote for who I vote for. And at the end of the day, it's up to you to make the best of the situation. You know, Warren Buffett loaned Goldman Sachs 10 billion. Is that right? During the downturn, he was ready for it. And yeah. he took advantage. And, you know, the number one, the home builder in Utah, they were buying property. They had a cash reserves. They had about 7 million bucks, I believe. And they were, they were making offers to the bank at 30 cents on the dollar. A month later, they're and the bank would say no a month later they come back at 20 cents on the dollar and <laughs> and certain you know the economy changes then they take advantage of a certain way and and laws change in utah and, and they've done really well no matter what so that's i think great. that's a really good point absolutely and, and don't do a deal just to do a deal i have a lot of investors that they're so excited to buy an income property because they've been listening to bigger pockets which is a great podcast yep or they've been watching HDTV and they want to flip so bad and yep. the margins aren't there and you have to be patient. I I've been waiting to find a really good deal for eight months now. I haven't done a deal in a while. I built a bunch of fourplexes last year in Idaho and I haven't bought land since then because it hasn't been the right land and right. sent out plenty of LOIs and gotten zero accepted. Right. Because we won't come up to the market. You know, we know what we need to do. We, we need to be conservative in this market. And so yeah. I, I love what you said there. A couple of guys I really respect that were in our meeting last weekend. Neither of them have bought, purchased a deal this year. Yeah. And, you know, one had remarked to me that he was getting his last deal, you know, it was a value add opportunity, getting all the ducks in a row there to make sure that deal ran well. Yep. And, and you know, he has a number of units, but he wasn't being overly aggressive about just making deals happen. He wanted to make sure that what he made, what the first one he did, or the last, I mean, the last deal that he did does what it, it, he said it was going to do for his investors. The other guy I think is doing, doing a similar thing. And he's also like trying to make sure that it's the right deal that fits his parameters rather than just jumping into any old deal. Because I mean, anybody will sell if the price is right. Right. Oh, if yeah. somebody comes along and says, you know, we just bought a 205 unit for about 10 and a half million. If somebody came in and offered me 14 million today, I'd probably take it. Right. And it does yeah, not say it's yeah. worth it, but you go out and you say, okay, we, we, we flipped this and made quick money, but that's what, that's what's happening is then people are just, they want to do a deal. So they, they drive this, these prices up that aren't really sustainable. Here's one for you. I was analyzing one in, in a really, really good location. I mean, it's a B asset built in 95 in an A plus location that nice. is older, but gentrifying plus a ton of business going in there. You know, we're in the Silicon slopes yeah. kind of business coming in and asking price was 38 million. And so I'm working backwards, <laughs> working backwards. <laughs> I got down to offer of $24 million. <laughs> and I was like, oh. I cannot offer more than 24 million for this property. That's the guy great. owes 28, I found out. Wow. And he's probably going to get 38 because all of these investors are excited about the silicon slopes yeah. and all the jobs, which it's amazing. Sure. But, that but that's property, the type of property that will be affected by the, the downturn because at some point yeah. then it won't be sustainable. Yep. Um, Unless rents increase by about $350 a month. And they, well, they could eat, they could put down 60, 70%, you know, if sure. they wanted for a down payment. And there's investors doing that, to be honest. There's a few of them I've seen here in Utah. There's a big syndicator putting down huge amounts of money 
because he realizes he's buying assets at a five cap, maybe a four cap. And, yep. but he can also raise 40 million in a month. So um, wow. he's in a good position. So look, we don't have a lot of time left. I want to promote you. You're, I know you're coaching for Rod Cleef. Is that right? I, I, yeah, I am. I have a handful of students with Rod. Rod's got a great platform, you know, give, give him a plug here, but you know, if people are looking at coaching and, you know, find some guru, you know, somebody that, that has a platform out there. There's, you know, Rod's not the only guy find right. somebody to connect with and somebody and, that's done it. That was my yeah. big thing. I actually paid for the coaching for Rod and I said, I need a coach yeah. that has units is actively buying units, operating units and has a track record. And, yeah. and that's what, who you are. So if people want to reach out to you, ask you questions, invest in your deals. I know you're yeah. looking for more deals. It, I mean, you have, more than 15, what is it? Uh, 17 years experience. That's huge. Yeah. That's the type of person I look for when I look for a partner or a yeah. coach or a mentor. What else do you have going on that we can promote or that we can, we can do for you? Sure. I, I appreciate it, man. You know, we're, you know, like I said, I've been doing, spend some time giving back, you know, by coach, you know, helping Rod with some of the students. So I don't, don't have a lot of that because I still have, you know, a business to run. So, right. but I really enjoy, I really enjoy that. And again, you know, anybody can find me on Facebook or LinkedIn, just under Jason Perro. If they want to hit me up personally, they can, you know, my email is just my first last name, Jason Perro at yahoo.com. My cell phone, they can call me too. Just right. don't abuse it, but 814-397-8030. You know, we've got a nice pipeline of deals in Erie. You know, I love, I love our area. And, and, and if anybody wants to talk about what we've got going on here, would love to um would love yeah, to connect. maybe i'll fly out and i need i need to place some money i've got got quite a bit of money I've, I've been waiting to find the right operator to partner with right guy raising money last thing about last that i wanted to mention raising money the right way i think yeah. it was clear last week and there's some people yeah doing it not yeah. the right way do you do 506 b or c investments we do b you know the reason the reason I didn't want to do the C, I mean, it would be really easy at that point to, to do a C to, to advertise and promote. And I didn't yeah. feel as though I had those channels set up properly. But additionally with the B, I have just friends and acquaintances and Me too. people on our social network that maybe they're retired and have like a really nice nest egg, but they're not making $200,000 a year, right? Yep. And, and yep. I think that I wanted to be able to serve that type of investor. Yeah. So, so we do... It, you know, we do five or six B's. Now I had a conversation with a friend of mine that's also in Rod Cleef's universe earlier this afternoon mm-hmm. that, you know, if you are going to partner up, I mean, you really want to make sure that you, you follow the rules and that think yep. long and hard about, you know, doing it the right way because yep. what, you know, if and when the, the economy turns, you don't want to be stuck answering some really difficult questions with the SEC. And oh, so, yeah. Oh yeah. As an example, if somebody has a lot of money or access to money to bring to a deal, you know, understand what, what else they can bring to the deal. Maybe it's, you know, it's just it, not just due diligence, but just be money, right? Yeah. An advisory role, you know, and, and like having, you know, legitimately having like monthly planning meetings and, and, yep. and, you know, having eyes and ears in the deal, not just like, cause if, if you pay to play and if, if somebody's just getting compensated for bringing money to a deal, that's playing with fire. And, and I think that that was, that's been made very clear. So right, I think right. um, just do it the right way and, and then good things will continue to come. Just take the time it takes to really map out what, what the right way looks like and, and having the right people on your team. 
That, that's huge. I, I am very, very slow to pull the trigger. I do my research and I, I wish my investors would do that as well sometimes. Uh, <laughs> but when I do, I go in full throttle. You know, I go in hard and, and I'm going to be very, very aggressive, but I do my research and a couple partners the same way. Well, listen, I, I've got to jump on another call. I don't want to sure. take all day for you, but you've been super valuable. 